The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Revival. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord. From the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, verses 1 through 4, and the book of Acts, chapter 13, verses 13 through 52. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when a fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No one has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. Now Paul and his companions had set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God had brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been set the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, with which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, 
Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome, Sacred City. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you didn't know, so we rent this, we have kind of a long-term lease in this theater and some buildings down there, and, th- and we kind of have to work around stage sets and stage designs, and this season it is the Susical, the musical, and so we're doing our best here, um, but uh, I'm pretty stoked to be starting a new series this morning. Joel, I love that new song. I'm excited to be singing that over the next nine, eight, nine weeks total. Uh, we're going to finish this series up on Easter, and then we'll go into the next series, which is studying um, life under the sun, examining the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, I am hmm, expectant, let's say that, towards this series. This series, let me pray, and I'll jump right into it, all right, because I want to get after it this morning. Father, we invite, like we've said many times before this morning, we invite your spirit here, your presence here. Um, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, and we want to be a church that celebrates the freedom that's been given to us because of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would think through my mind, that you would speak through my vocal cords, that it would be all of you and none of me, that you would help me bring out the truth that is in your word uh, for your people to feast upon. Um, I pray that you would do this for our good and for your glory, uh, that you'd stir in your people's hearts, that you would call people into new life this morning, that you would renew and revive and restore um, that which is broken, that which is um, marred by sin, that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can tell we're starting a new series this morning called Revival. And um, soon they'll be bringing out the snakes to put along. No, no. Uh, not really. We're going to hopefully pick apart some of those kind of uh, negative connotations with this word revival. Um, You can see I'm not wearing a white suit. Um, Some don't think you can start revival without a white suit. Uh, But this series has really been birthed out of two things. First, the more I read and study God's word, the more passionate I become about God doing something unique, something special, something powerful in our church and in our city. Over and over throughout the Bible, God comes down And he meets his people in very special ways. He spoke to men and women and they responded. The the course of their life was changed. He manifested his presence in very unique situations that have, have literally and completely altered the course of human history. People's lives were changed. Entire cities responded and repented and began to worship God. And even great kings and nations bowed their knees to the king of kings. And I long, as I read the Bible and I compare it to what I'm seeing, I long to see God do that again here in the Quad Cities. Do you long for that? Do you know that's a reality that we can have because of the work of Jesus, that we can be revived? And secondly, I guess just to put it frankly, Though God is doing good things and and great things in our church and and lives have been changed and and my own missional community this week, they went around sharing evidences of grace and how God has changed them over the past year and it brought a lot of encouragement to my soul. But even with all of that, when I look around, I am not seeing the fruit of revival that I would like to see in my own life and ministry and throughout our city. I have too many friends that don't know nor love Jesus. I know far too many people who claim Christ 
and yet their life shows no fruit of repentance or passion or zeal for God. They lack true spiritual vitality and vibrancy. They need a revival. They need God in their life. And then a few months ago, as I was praying about what the Lord would have us do in this new year, I came across a study done by the Barna Research Group that completely shocked me. This study was done over a 10-year period, and it concluded in 2014, and it ranked, this is the title of it, America's Top Churchless Cities. Now, usually when I see these things, we're a part of a global family of church planting churches, Acts 29 network. And so um, basically, if you're on the stage at an Acts 29 church, you're in a cool city. Okay, I'm just going to say that, right? You're in Seattle or you're in Dallas or you're in somewhere cool, right? Uh, and, and usually in the top 10 of these churchless cities, you're up on stage telling us how to reach people, okay? And so typically when I see these things, I just kind of throw it away because it doesn't have anything to do with the Midwest most of the time. But for whatever reason, I started reading through this, and now a churchless city, that basically they're, they're measuring how many people go to church, how many people don't go to church, and by don't go to church, being churchless, they mean you haven't been to church in the past six months other than Easter or Christmas, okay? So we rule out the creasters, all right? Uh, now, this is, this is what surprised me. As I was reading this, the top 10... Comes as no surprise. Number one, churchless city, San Francisco, right? You go down, and you, number four, Portland, not a surprise. Number six, Las Vegas, not a surprise. Seven, Seattle, right? You got Troy, New York up here. You got Phoenix. You got New York, New York, number 10. I'm like, yep, 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 N you know, normal, normal, normal. And I keep reading, and they rank the top 100. And I get down to number 27, and number 27 says, Davenport, Iowa, Rock Island, Moline, Illinois. That's us, folks, the Quad Cities. 41% of the Quad Cities are unchurched. They haven't been to a service, a church gathering in the past six months, other than maybe one at Christmas time. Now, I read that, and two things happened. First, it's like, finally! Right? Finally, we made a list of some kind. <laughs> right? And then the second one was, I was deeply grieved for our city. And it also put some pieces together in my mind. The, some of the frustration that I've been feeling. How hard it is to get some people to come to a church or come into a missional community gathering. How they'll easily talk about Jesus like on the surface, but they don't actually want to be a part of a group of people and sit under the word of God. And so here we are, 27th least church city in the United States of America. 41% of our population doesn't go to church at all. And so that grieved me. That burdened me. That's worse than Chicago, St. Louis, Des Moines, and Kansas City. Here in the Quad Cities. And then on top of all of that, there are many churches in our city that have stopped preaching the gospel. Instead, they preach some kind of positive, feel-good message where they're trying to just move people's emotions and make them feel a little bit better about themselves and send them on their way. And because of that, statistics say 85% of the churches in our cities are stagnated or declining. It means they're not growing. They didn't see one convert last year. When Paul, the apostle, is writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy about the end times, about the last days, he gives this litany of sins that will increase as the day of the Lord approaches. Let me quote it. This is what he says. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Did you hear that, kids? Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, 
Now listen, as he's reading that list, I think we could all take a look at the news or take a look at our news feed, and we all see these things increasing in our own city and, of course, in our country. But what's interesting is Paul doesn't stop with those things that are rather not, not that surprising. I mean, sometimes it should be surprising that it seems like the world is getting darker in a sense, and brutal things are happening all around us in a so-called civilized and educated society. But this is the, this is the odd-shaped cherry that Paul, takes on, Paul puts on top of that list of sins. He sums it all up by saying this, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Paul says that in the last days, many people will look godly. They'll look put together. They, but they won't have any real spiritual power. That means they might go to church they might be a moral and upstanding citizen who pays their bills and pays their taxes and mows their grass and is a good neighbor. But they do not have the present effective working of the Holy Spirit inside of them. How can you tell? Simply, they don't have a passion for God. They don't desire the things of God. They don't care much about prayer, about making disciples or worshiping God. Their life is their own and they don't bother themselves by being inconvenienced by the reality of God intruding into their daily life. They may go to church occasionally, but their life is void of spiritual fruits and a passion for God. Listen, I'm not mad at these people. My heart breaks for them. My heart breaks for that lifeless, boring, self-centered, small, pointless existence. Having an appearance of godliness, but denying the power, but no power in their life. That's a frustrating life. And so these two things, this, the Bible says that God will revive us and our need to be revived, these things have come together in my mind. See, the biblical witness that God is pleased to revivify his people and our great need to be revived. It's my prayer that through this series, a few things will happen. One, sacred city will be revived, that our desire to see the lost saved would be rekindled and we would boldly share the gospel with outsiders, invite them into our church for them to be shaped um, as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Second, that our friends and family members who don't have a vital relationship with the risen Lord would come to know him in a powerful way. Do you long for that? Third, that our city would be renewed and restored as more and more people come to know Christ and live for his presence in our world or live for his purposes in our world. But now, all of that begs the question, what is revival? What really is revival? And I'm gonna try to answer that for us this morning. Well, I don't think we can find a better scriptural definition then the first scripture that we had read for us this morning from Isaiah chapter 64, verses one through four. You can open up your Bible there. That's where we're gonna be going. Find it in your app. There's Bibles in the seats in front of you. If you don't have one, we want you to follow along with us. And in this text, Isaiah 64, one through four, the prophet Isaiah gives us two gifts written 2,500, 3,000 years ago. He shows us first what revival is and secondly, he shows us that we should want it. It's good to long for and desire revival. First, what is revival? Look at Isaiah 64, verse 1. When you're there, say there. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. Rend means tear open. Pull back as if a curtain. Rend the heavens and come down. Now this is a metaphor for God manifesting his presence in the midst of his people. It's a metaphor because God is omnipresent. God is always everywhere, all at the same time, okay? We, the Bible uses metaphorical language 
talking about God being in heaven and God being up there, but God is everywhere all at the same time. But this metaphor of God stepping down, it, con- it connotes a couple things. One, that we, we're distant from him. We're separate from him. We feel his distance and that we want him and that he can come down into human history. Now, what happens when he comes down, when he manifests his presence in the midst of his people? Well, look, that the mountains might quake at your presence. That the mountains might quake at your presence. Look at the next one. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. Now here's the, here's the illustration that Isaiah is using. When God rends the heaven and God manifests his presence and God comes down, things change. Now he's using physical language like mountains tremble and like when you add fire to water, water boils and you add fire to brush and the brush is consumed. When God's presence meets his people or meets people, things change. Okay, now he's not just talking about literally mountains shake, even though that has happened sometimes. When Christ was crucified, it happened specifically. Look what he's talking about. Keep reading. So God's presence brings change. What kind of change? To make your name known to your adversaries. So when God comes down, people who don't like God come to know him. People who are far from God come to know him. And that the nations might tremble at your presence. So you had mountains quaking. Who are the mountains? Nations. Nations tremble. Nations come under the awe and authority of God. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. Now this right here, this is what we need. This is what this series is all about. God coming down and visiting us in our personal lives, in our church family, in our extended family, in our city, in all of our acquaintances in such a way that people have to respond to the physical presence of God. That God does something unique in our city that people point at it and go, that's God. That's what we want to see happen. That's what revival is. The working... The working definition of revival, I'm going to put this on a slide for us. The working definition of revival that we're going to use for this entire series is this. Boom. A movement of God where individuals are awakened to God. Churches are revitalized. That's key. We're not just talking about our own church. When real, true revival happens, it happens to all of God's church. Churches are revitalized and the culture is impacted for the glory of God. In a real revival, it doesn't stay within the four walls of a church building or a church gathering, that the greater society is affected as a whole. So one of the first things that we should know about revival is that it is a movement of God. Isaiah says, oh God, that you would come down God coming down. It's a movement of God. That is to say, hear me, it is God-centered. It is about God. It's not about us. God does revival. We don't. Now, this goes against, more than likely, the concept of revival that you have in your head. You can drive by parts of the city, and if they have a sign, put up that what is revival thing, if you can. If they have a sign like this, just saying, if they have a sign like this, they sometimes you'll see on there, uh, October 10th to the 12th, revival, right? And they clearly sent an email to God. They scheduled him. And God, who acts according to all of our schedules, just says, well, I got an appointment October 10th. I'm going to be down at this church right here, and we're gonna, a move of God is going to happen right? We don't get to schedule God. A revival isn't a, you know, something scheduled. A revival is a move of God, okay? Many churches schedule revivals where they gather several nights in a row, 
and they have powerful traveling evangelists come in and try to get as many people as possible to accept Jesus and walk the altar or walk the aisle to the altar and receive prayer. Now, some of us maybe have been to those churches. Some of us have maybe even came to faith in those churches. I'm not condemning that practice as a whole, um, but that's not revival. That is a method of mass conversion that stems from a guy named Charles Finney. That is actually called revivalism. And I have that definition up up here as well. Revivalism is a movement centered on mass evangelism rather than a comprehensive renewal movement affecting the whole church and the surrounding culture. You saw in our definition of revival, it affects our church, it affects us personally, it affects all the churches in our city, and it affects our city as a whole. There's three pieces to a a real revival, right? People are changed, churches are revitalized, the city is restored, renewed, the culture is impacted in some way. In revivalism, it's just localized to one little church. People get really excited, have a guest speaker come in, get hyped up, have a worship night, have several worship nights, get really excited about Jesus. Maybe some people come to know the Lord. So in revivalism, I'm going to say this, revivalism is man-centered. It focuses on tips and tricks and techniques and methods to get as many people as possible to commit to Christ. Revivalism is propagated today by guys, and I'm going to say this, by guys like T.D. Jakes and Stephen Furtick. Preachers who like the hype, they want to get people excited about it, they think they can schedule things, and they have ways, human methods of marketing, human methods of you know, psychological manipulation to get people to respond. They just keep saying over and over, there's one more person here, one more person here needs Jesus come down. I'm not going until one more person comes down. And then finally, you're so hungry, you get up and you come down to the altar, (laughs) right? I'm not condemning these men. I think these men are Christians, but they're misguided in their approach to ministry. And I'm just gonna say, you should stay away from them, church. True revival cannot be scheduled. It cannot be orchestrated or organized. It cannot be manufactured. True revival is a movement of God in his providence. Jesus says in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The flesh is no help at all. It's the spirit who gives life. Ray Ortland, Acts 29 pastor and Old Testament scholar, he says this, we cannot trigger a divine visitation on our churches, but it is our responsibility to prayerfully offer our Lord a church steeped in the gospel and tenderly responsive to his presence. And that's where we want to be sacred city. We want to be tenderly responsive to his presence. We see that in Isaiah here. This is the second thing Isaiah shows us about revival. First, he says, what is revival? When God comes down and shakes the earth and people have to take notice. Secondly, he shows us that we should want it. Dr. Ray Ortland, in his commentary on Isaiah, says that the first word of this chapter is the most important for us to understand what Isaiah is saying. Do you see the first word? What's the first word? Oh. See, oh. Isaiah is not just describing for us revival. He's not theorizing about it. He's desiring it. He's craving it. He's tenderly responsive to God's spirit and he shows it by praying for revival and praying for it with passion. He's saying, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. How many of us pray for revival with that type of passion? Pray for God to do something unique and special in our city, in our family, in our neighbors, in our schools like that. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and make the earth quake in your presence. 
Well, I'm praying and I'm hoping that we can change that over the next nine weeks. And so that's one of the reasons, do I have that little book that I do? That's one of the reasons I put together this little, and our design team put together this little prayer journal. And here, here's what this is for, okay? It's, it, there's eight weeks worth of prayer time in here, okay? That's gonna take us to Easter. And what this is meant to do, basically I've got four days a week. You, if you were rushed, you could literally do this in two minutes a day. Okay, I encourage you to spend a little bit more time on that. But what we're, what, we, what we're doing is this is eight weeks of praying for God to come down and revive his people and do something special in our city. And it's unique where day one, it starts out with where you're praying for you and your family. And I got a verse there and I give you some hints on what to pray for. You can pray for people by names. There's a little journaling section here. Now listen, day two, listen, we're, we're, we're uh-oh, I forget what it is. Centripetal? Centripetal or centrifugal? I can't remember which one that spins out. Whatever. The one that spins out. None of you know either. We all failed whatever it was, right? <laughs> physics or whatever, right? All right? Whatever it was, it's probably physics. All right. Listen, so here's what, the prayer, here's what this prayer journal does. It starts with you and then it moves out from there, Okay? So it starts with you, yourself, and your family. Day two, neighbors, church, coworkers, a scripture, some thoughts on how to pray for them. You can pray for them by name right here. Day three, it goes to your city and nation. We can pray for our city and our nation. Day four, the world and the global church. It's gonna be a lot of stuff. I've got stuff about Kenya in here because we do so much work with Kenya. I'm gonna be directing our prayers towards that. Now here's what I'm asking the Lord to do. I'm asking the Lord to hear the prayers of his people. I'm asking his people to pray for revival and I've given you a resource that I hope that I can help you, you do that. You could pack it in your lunch. If you take a lunch at work, you could get it next to your coffee. When you get your coffee, you start it with it in the morning. You could put it by your bedside table. You could do it the last thing you do at night. But what will happen if God's people pray like Isaiah and say, oh God, that you would rend the heaven, what would God do? I don't know. He might hear us he might answer us. He might send revival. I'm praying that he would. And so I put this together for you. I pray that you would take use of it um, and that we would see God do great things over this next nine weeks. All right, there's that. Now, this leads us to the kind of the, the second thing that we see about revival. Why is revival even necessary? See, revival is seasonal, it's not perennial. Revival is necessary because recessions are reality, okay? Revival is necessary because recession is reality. All throughout the Old Testament, you see this cyclical pattern that God visits his people, he calls them, he speaks to them, he comes down, they repent, they renew their covenant with him. Things go really well for a while. There's a lot of worship. There's a lot of joyous passion for God. People come to know him. Uh, cities are renewed. Great things happen. And then people begin to drift away from God. Hearts begin to grow cold. Just as if you take fire away from the water, the water does not stay boiling. The water comes down to room temperature, right? And that's what happens. God's people's heart grow cold. Their faith is forgotten. And then seasons of decline happen, horrible seasons of decline. And as their faith goes down and as their faith grows cold, the city gets dark and the city gets worse, right? And horrible things start to happen to people. And then someone begins to cry out for God. God stirs the heart of some prophet or some person and they begin, they find the word of God again. They come back to God, they repent. And now God brings this season of revival and he restores them and he draws near to them and kind of the cycle begins all over again. And we see this pattern throughout church history. It's not just in the Bible, it's all through the Bible, but we also see this pattern throughout church history, or I could just say throughout history. Recession and revival has been a historical reality that has been well-documented 
and it's been well-documented since the Reformation. If you know anything about the Reformation, the Re- at the time of the Reformation, it was, a gr- it was spiritually dark, right? There was one church, and that church had uh, been corrupted, and people were lost, and the gospel itself was all but lost until the spark of the Reformation, and when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to, to the Wittenberg door, revival began to happen, and people came to faith in droves, and the city was changed, and ultimately, literally, the world was changed because of the Reformation. And since then, since the Reformation, we've been documenting these things, this kind of ebb and flow of revival, this recession and revival. And one of the first, um, what's called the Great Awakening in the 18th century, this revival that happened it united Protestants of all denominations and into this international ecumenical renewal movement centered on experiencing the presence of God through Reformation Orthodoxy. Now, what does that mean? That means the gospel was rediscovered, the truths of the gospel, our own sinfulness, the holiness of God, the sufficiency and the merit of Christ that he lived the life that we didn't live and he died the death that we deserve and he was resurrected at the right hand and he sent his Holy Spirit and we can know God through Jesus Christ right now and we can experience him, right? This was kind of rediscovered during the 18th century revival in the Great Awakening. And one of the instruments in that revival was a guy named George Whitfield. And I read one of his uh, autobiography or his biography last year and uh, he's one of the great preachers, one of the greatest preachers ever, and he, he said during this revival, he said this, listen, quote, so many persons come to me under conviction and for advice that I scarcely have time to eat bread. Wonderful things are doing here. The word runs like lightning. That was, that's George Whitfield's description of the great awakening. He would preach and the word runs like lightning and people come to him and they pack his schedule and they want to know God and they want to be saved and they want to know more about it. It said he would preach to crowds up to 20,000 people with no microphone. But this wasn't just something that was going on inside of a church. It's funny because the churches actually had rejected him they wouldn't allow him to preach in America. They wouldn't allow him to preach him, or in Great Britain. They wouldn't allow him to preach there. And so he went to having open air meetings, just preaching outside. It wasn't something that was just localized in a church or something larger than that. And one of America's founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, had this to say about the revival that he was seeing in Philadelphia. He says this, and he was a friend of George Whitfield, though. Benjamin Franklin was not a Christian. Quote Benjamin Franklin, it was wonderful to see the change in the inhabitants of the city. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing the psalms sung in different families of every street. See, when we're describing these things of revival, this isn't written down by some religious historian that's trying to bend the facts and, 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 and you know, give us some kind of fire for our future desire for revival. This is a historical reality that happened in the United States. Benjamin Franklin, the guy on our $100 bill, he didn't know. He saw it with his own eyes and he wrote about it. You walk through the cities and you hear families singing the psalms in their homes. See, it didn't just happen in the church and it didn't just happen in a group of churches. It was happening throughout the city. That's what we want to see here. That's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm desiring. And then later we see in the second awakening, at the beginning of the 19th century, that this revival that took place, it united evangelical evangelicals Toward world missions, they begin to form missions organizations that were sending people to unreached, comp- unreached countries. They're sending people to China. They're sending people to India. 
It launched all kind of expansive social programs, including the abolition of slavery. Slavery got abolished because revival happened. See, revival isn't just spiritual feelings. Revival changes people, and it gives them a heart for God and a heart for people. And so when they saw slavery happening, they had a change of mind and a change of heart, and former slave owners converted to Christianity, began to write some of our famous hymns about used to being slave owners, and they were converted, and they went, and they made it their life's calling to abolish slavery. See, Revival, it changes our hearts, changes our families, changes our cities, and it can literally change the world. And when I look at my life, and I look at my family, and I look at our city, and I look at our world, I say, this is what we need. Will we pray for it? Will we ask God? Will we desire it? Will he send it? Ortland again says this, revival is a season in the life of the church when God causes the normal ministry of the gospel to surge forward with extraordinary spiritual power. So revival isn't something we got to work up. Revival isn't something, that, you know, even though we're kind of playing, we're kind of playing off this like, you know, Jesus says, revival, tent meeting, all those old signs, we're kind of playing off of that. Revival isn't something we do. We ask for it and God in his graciousness sends it. We preach the gospel and we've been preaching, the, this is what it's like. I, I use this illustration kind of a lot. When you're preaching the gospel with, and, you, and God's not really in it, I'm just gonna say it, God's not really in it, it's like throwing a ping pong ball at a statue. You're sharing the gospel and it's just bouncing off of people, just bouncing off of them. And then when the Holy Spirit comes and changes that heart of stone into a living heart that's receptive to the Spirit of God, you share the same gospel. It could be the same exact thing you said the day before, and all of a sudden, it sinks in, sinks into their heart, and it changes them. And you can see that. We're going to give a, a, a New Testament example of what that looks like as we go to Acts chapter 13. And I'm going to have to fly through this uh, really long section of Scripture. So go open up your Bibles, Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 54. <clears throat> this is a New Testament, Testament example of what revival looks like. Now, here, here's what I'm going to say. We're going we're gonna to study this. We're going to take apart revival over the next nine weeks and say, what are the normal pieces that you find in a revival? If you kind of reverse engineer it and you kind of take it apart, what pieces do you normally see in revival? And it's always, you're going to see the gospel. You're going to see rediscovery of, of um, the reality of the gospel, the doctrinal truths of the gospel, the power of the gospel. And then you're going to also see that people are motivated for mission. They start sharing the gospel. You're going to see all this kind of stuff happen. But I want to break this down for us in two pieces. I just did it through that illustration. There's our part and there's God's part. Our part is normal gospel, gospel ministry knowing the gospel, believing the gospel, sharing the gospel. And God's part is making dead things grow. Okay? Let's look at Acts chapter 13, verses 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. Now why should we care about all that? Here's the reality. This is the first recorded sermon from the Apostle Paul. Okay? Why do we care about that? The Apostle Paul also named Saul, hated Christianity. He had all kind of mental hurdles why Christianity could not be true. It cannot be true primarily because their savior, Jesus Christ, was cursed by God. How do I know he was cursed by God? Old Testament says anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. Jesus was crucified, therefore he was cursed by God, therefore he can't be the Old Testament savior. Case closed. They Christians say he is, so I'm going to kill Christians and I'm going to snuff out this new religion. He was hardcore, all right? And then all of a sudden, he meets the resurrected Jesus and he gets converted. Jesus plows through all of his hurdles. 
right? Paul wants to say, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Jesus stands up and says, I'm resurrected, dummy. He says, okay, that's true. I should listen to you, right? Plows through all of his hurdles. And now, after being converted, Paul begins to preach. Now, he's probably having, like, they probably had a preacher's lab for him, right? Preaching lab and testing him out. Like, okay, Paul, do your thing, right? But this is our first recorded sermon by the Apostle Paul. And not surprising, it's a little long-winded, right? He's going to go, he's going to present the gospel within an Old Testament context, the Old Testament narrative. He's preaching to Jews primarily, and he's showing them how all of the fulfillment of all the prophecies throughout the Old Testament that Jesus is the one, okay? That's what he's doing. He's presenting the gospel to them in a pretty complex and nuanced way, And he says, oh, he shows them how God raised up David, but David wasn't him, but David was pointing forward to Jesus. He's going on and on and on. Um, Goes through the whole story. Let's start at verse 23. I'm going to skip that. We're going to start in verse 23 because I don't have time. 23, of this man's offspring, that's that's, uh, Jesse and David, God has brought to Israel, look, a savior. Jesus, as he promised. Now here we see already, we see Paul's change of heart, right? The Jesus he was trying to persecute is now the Jesus he says is the Old Testament Messiah, the Savior of all mankind. Verse 24, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he, I'm not the Messiah. No, but behold, after me is coming one who the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. This is the gospel. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, they couldn't put the pieces together of the suffering servant in Isaiah and the promised Messiah who would come. They couldn't put the pieces together, which were read every Sabbath, fulfilled these prophecies by condemning Jesus. Jesus prophesied had to die for the sins of his people. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Now, what's Peter, what's Paul doing? This is important, guys. Paul is not, he's not meeting their felt needs. He's not asking them how they feel. How do you feel? I feel kind of distant. Well, do you know that God could come down and God could meet you and God could do, do you know, I feel kind of depressed. Do you know God could fix that for you? You know what, I'm kinda, I don't have enough money. Do you know that if you start serving God, he'll give you all the money you need? That's not how Paul presents the gospel to people. He's talking about historical facts. Jesus, this guy that you condemned. Remember Pilate? Yeah, the ruler, our Pilate, the ruler, right? He is the one who put, put Jesus forward. Now, why is he doing that? Let's, let's keep reading. They found in him no guilt worthy of death and asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. We sang a song this morning that talks about the Joseph's tomb. Why is that a big deal? Why do we sing about that? Because that's a historical detail. That's a historical fact. When that was written in this day and age, people go, oh, Joseph of Arimathea, his tomb? Let's go talk to him. Let's go ask him. That's a historical detail that's important for us. Now let's keep reading. That's why Paul says it here. Look at verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. Jews, like us, did not believe in physical resurrection. Life after death, maybe, that's not what the word means. It means a man was dead and came back to life. Paul, the one who previously persecuted Christ and Christians to death, all of a sudden now says this, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Paul himself was one of those people that the resurrected Jesus appeared to. And in and Corinthians, he says he appeared to over 500 different people. 500 different eyewitnesses said, 
I saw the resurrected Jesus Christ with my own eyes. And I'm here to tell you about it. I'm here to confirm it. And this started this explosive expanse of Christianity in a society that had tons of hurdles against believing in Christianity. Let's keep reading. And we bring you, look, the gospel, the good news. The good news, not, listen, the good news isn't primarily, here's how you can have a better life. Here's how you can love your wife better, love your husband better. Here's how you can have better kids. Here's how you can have a better business. Listen, here is the good news. It's a historical fact. It's a historical reality. In fact, he's going to use that word. We bring you the good news that what God promised in the Old Testament to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by, look, raising Jesus. As also was written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And look at verse 34. And as for the fact that God raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. Here's what Peter is presenting as the gospel. The fact that Jesus died and was resurrected. That's the fact. Historical reality. He's pointing to historical details. Remember Joseph? Remember Pilate? You guys all saw it with your own eyes. I'm an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. There's a lot more resurrected. They're out as witnesses. They're out preaching the gospel right now. And he goes on and he, he, kind of, he shows them the theological meaning of this death. Let's just jump to verse 36 for right now. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So in the Psalms, when it says that he's not going to let his Holy One see corruption, it wasn't spe- even though David said it, it wasn't speaking of David, it was pointing forward to Jesus Christ who would not see corruption. Verse 37, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. What's he talking about? The resurrection of Jesus. We got four or five clear examples in his first sermon. What's the big deal about the gospel? A guy was dead and now he's been resurrected. Deal with it. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, here's the theological meaning of a guy was dead and now he's resurrected. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. All of that needs to be underlined. Freed from everything that legalism, that rules couldn't free you from. But then he, he warns them, be, beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers. Why, why is he talking about this? We're talking about a guy coming back from de- death. We're talking about resurrection. That doesn't happen. I know for a fact that doesn't happen. Right? That's what we believe. Resurrection, people dying, coming back to live new life, doesn't happen. Paul, Paul's giving all these historical realities. I know it doesn't, but it did. And he's saying this. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Ooh. He's saying, you can believe it or not. Keep going. As they, uh, do I want to keep going yet? I don't think I do. I want to stop. Why am I talking about this? Many of us struggle sharing the gospel. Here it is. Jesus was resurrected. That's it. Let's talk about that. No, why, why, why do I want to talk about that? Most of the people, when I share the faith, when I share the gospel with people, what they usually want to say is, oh, I, I could never be a Christian. Like, what, what do you mean you could never be a Christian? Why? Why couldn't you be a Christian? Because I don't like what this part of the Bible says. I reject it. I find it offensive. I find it narrow. I don't like it. I could never be a Christian. I could never believe that. What if we started responding to that statement by this? Oh, so you're saying because you don't like that, Jesus Christ could not have been raised from the dead? Because this is the reality that Christianity stands or falls on. 
Did Christ die? History says yes. Outside sources say yes. Bible says yes. Biblical witness says yes. Right? Was he resurrected? That's the reality. Can we please deal with this? I don't, Christianity wasn't meant to give you warm fuzzies. It wasn't get meant to confirm all your ideologies that you hold dear in your mind, right? It wasn't meant to fit into your Republican, you know, voting block. It wasn't meant to fit in your Democratic voting block. It wasn't meant to confirm to all the brilliant things your professor taught you in your ancient religion class. It wasn't meant to, to confirm any of those things or fit inside neatly any of those things. Here is the reality that changed the world. A dead man got up. Deal with it. What are you going to do? Let's talk about it. And here's, the, here's, here's where I come from. If a guy beats death, I should probably listen to everything he says. Because it's the one thing nobody else can beat. Nobody else has beaten. Now, I have, I have a neighbor, brilliant guy, old guy. He's retired now. He, uh, he has a PhD in philosophy. And he taught for many years in the university settings. And I read a lot. Sorry to shame your, you know, tear, you know, tear apart your opinion of me. But I sit around, I sit in the, and when it's nice out, I sit outside, I smoke cigars, and I read a lot of books. And he comes over a lot and he talks. And one of the things he likes to do, he talks about poetry. We read some T.S. Eliot together. It's one of his favorite poets. And one day he came over and he brought this big old Chinese philosophy book over. And he wanted to talk to me about this you know, Teo and all of this uh, mysterious religion that's so old and talk about how truth and being and God and it was all so mysterious and we can never really know and he was just waxing eloquently about all these different things. He, no doubt, I was the pupil and he was the, 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 the uh, uh, professor in that time. And he looked at me and said, what do you think? You know, he's asking me about truth and being and God and I said, I don't know, that's all really confusing to me. What if God really rent the heavens and stepped down and became a man in Jesus Christ and the truth put on flesh and he really walked among us? What if? And he goes, well, then this, this is all crap then. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it pretty much is. See, the resurrection changes things. Why don't we talk about that? Why don't we talk about that? Jesus was resurrected. Why don't you research? If you don't believe me, if you're a doubter, if you're a scoffer, if you're a skeptic, that's totally okay. We welcome you in here. I hopefully I can unpack some of those doubts and, and unbelief that you have and hopefully can educate you and show you there's plenty of evidence and good reason to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But instead of saying, I don't like this about Christianity and therefore writing it out, writing it off, I don't like how they treat this, I don't like what you have to do, I don't like all these different things, why don't you research the fact, was this guy really resurrected? Did he really come back from the dead? Why don't you research the life of Jesus? Research the resurrection, research the history of the early church and how it got started and how this little minuscule thing, this little flame, this little flicker that started up in the Roman Empire eventually overturned it and toppled the Roman Empire that nothing else could topple. See, this is the fact that changes history and can change your life if you let it. And this is the fact that all revivals begin with. Jesus Christ beat death. What are you going to do about it? Will you believe it? Will you look at it? Will you think about it? You claim to be open-minded. Have been open-minded about the resurrection? And then look what happens. So this is, guys, this is our part. We share the gospel right? It doesn't have to be complicated. We can just talk about the resurrection, talk about what happened, talk about what, do you, what does Jesus mean to you, right? We share the gospel with people. This is our part. Now, that can be like a ping pong ball going off the head of a stone statue until it's not. Look at verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. 
Oh, oh, I'll tell you what, as a preacher, this is what I'm wanting in revival, right? Justin, we didn't have enough. Give me another hour. We didn't have enough. Let's do a Sunday night service. We didn't have enough. Let's do some more, right? Begging for it, right? Begging for it more. I want to know more about this Jesus. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So here we have converts, people hearing the gospel, and the gospel actually went into them and changed them, and they believed it. They, that means they believed in spite of all their uh, hurdles for not believing that resurrected people can actually exist, they plowed through all those and they say, I believe in the resurrected man, Jesus Christ, the son of God. I believe in him, okay? And all these, we're not the first generation to have objections, okay? They did as well. Keep reading, 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Come on, right? Buildings can't contain them. It's citywide now. Now listen, I love this. God, he is not, what, what's, I, I, I get up here and I, I, I always have something in my mind and half the time I can't connect the word. He's not triumphalistic. And the word, tri and triumphalistic means, especially in America, we believe that our business should go like this. Our growth pattern, we just want it. And I, in the same way, I want to share the gospel and I want every single person to get it, to believe it, to be changed by it, to meet Jesus and love Jesus. But that's not reality, okay? The same, Puritans used to say, the same sun that hardens the clay melts the ice, okay? Some get hardened and some get softened. Look what happens here. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying it was, so first off, remember when in Isaiah when God comes down and the earth shake, like change happens, water starts to boil, things start getting caught on fire. This is some of that mountains shaking, naked nations trembling. People start, some people get converted and some people get angry about it. Keep reading. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> and the Gentiles, when they heard this, <clears throat> they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Mic drop. God calls people to himself, and they respond to the gospel. And those who do not respond have not been appointed to eternal life. In that moment, they might respond later. But again, the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust off of their feet and went to Iconium. And the disciples, here's the result of revival, guys. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They're being persecuted. They don't care because people are coming to know Christ. God has come down through the power of the Holy Spirit. They have an inner witness to God being in them and they're preaching the gospel and people are responding and they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. See, this is God's job. We share the gospel and God brings the fruit. We sow the seed and God brings the fruit. Okay, we share the gospel with our friends and we trust God to change their heart and do the supernatural work that only he can do. And we, in our, the word that Jesus used, our prayer closet, when we're alone by ourselves and we're praying, we're asking God, oh, would you rend the heavens and come down and do this? Do what you've already done. 
Do what Isaiah longed for. Do what you fulfilled in the book of Acts. Do what you did in the 18th century. Do what you did in the 19th century. Do something new right now. We need it. Our city needs it. America needs it. And this brings joy. I've been meditating on this as I close a lot. Peter shares the gospel with the Jews. They reject it. And then he pivots to the Gentiles. There's some of us who've been sharing the gospel for a long time with one person, two person, three persons, and it's time for us to pivot. Not forget about them, not stop praying for them, not stop hoping for them, but to pivot and maybe develop a new relationship, develop a new friendship, talk to somebody else at work and see if the Spirit would be pleased to do work in them. And maybe the absence of your pressure, the absence of your friendship, the absence of you pursuing them, that the Lord would use that to stir their heart to seek repentance and seek Jesus Christ. So this is what revival is. This is our part. Our part is sharing the gospel. God's part is bringing the fruit. Would you join me? Would you, do you want this? No, no, I'm really asking you right now. Do you want this? Listen, there's seasons where we have to plow through. We have to suck it up. There's seasons where we're in the desert and things feel dry and we just, we just, we know what's true. We just lock our eyes on it. We just carry a heavy load. We put our head down and bear it with our shoulders and pull our shoulders back and just walk ahead. There's seasons, but our whole life doesn't have to be like that. There are some times when you catch a wind of the Holy Spirit and the wind of the Holy Spirit catches your sails and you start going 100 miles an hour and it's not any more effort you put in, it's all the Holy Spirit pushing you from behind. That's what we want to see happen now in our city, if God would be gracious to us. Father God, we beg with Isaiah, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and do something new in us and through us and here in our city. It's not because of our goodness. It's not because of our moral excellence. It's not because of our devotion and our intensity in our prayers. It's because you are gracious and you long to revivify your people. You long to, to blow a breeze through your people that refreshes them when we cry out for you. And I pray that you would stir in our hearts a holy, reverent desire for revival in us and in our city and in our, in our country and in our world. And you would start now and you would do it, Lord, for your glory and for our joy. As we come to the table, we're reminded that you never leave us, you never forsake us. Even in our lack of zeal, even in our lack of passion, even in our own brokenness and sinfulness and our, our lack of desire to see others come to know Christ, you have still given us yourself. You have made covenant with us that you cannot break. A covenant that was sealed and your broken body, and your shed blood. And so now we come to you, and we receive. We receive your body, and we receive your blood. The new covenant. Rather than in the new covenant, we're reminded that after times of repentance, you send times of refreshing. And I pray that you would do that for your people today. In the name of the Most High, in the name of of his son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.